Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you hearty souls who were not uh, turned away by some weather and ice and whatever else might have gone with that. It was a daunting task just to clean off my car, and I thought, this is why I live in Nevada, so we don't have to do this stuff. <laughs> but here we are. So uh, thank you for being here today. We uh, are going to um, cover a lot of ground today. We're going to do the entire book of Romans. Chris laughs at me. I'm not sure why that's funny. <laughs> no, it is. We're, we're going we're gonna to cover the entire book. And uh, that's a daunting task in itself to be able to get all the way through it. And uh, so we're going to start right in, in chapter 1. We're going to work our way all the way through. And, of course, when you do this kind of uh, survey, and that's really what it is, is a survey, we're going to pass by a lot of details that, uh, that may be very dear to you. I may pass right over a passage that is your favorite memory verse ever, and I may not even mention it. Or there may be a topic that comes up in Romans that, uh, that I don't cover or, uh, or go by very quickly. In fact, there are many topics that are favorites of mine in this book that I'm not going to cover today. That's because we're doing a survey. That's because we're covering ground at a very quick uh, rate. So if you'd open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we're going to start there. When uh, I, I grew up flying actually quite a bit, um, if we moved to Nevada when I was nine from Arkansas, and we, I flew back and forth a couple times and flew different places. So I, you know, I have been flying since I was pretty young, but I'd never flown over the ocean, and I thought that would be really, really exciting to fly over the ocean. You know, you're you're covering a lot of territory, and you're you're moving, you're changing continents, and that's got to be cool, right? And so the first time we flew to Russia. We got on the plane, we start flying, we get out over the ocean. I think, all right, now's my chance, right? I get to look at the ocean and see what it's like from the plane. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> it's all the same as far as the eye can see, you know, the occasional white cap, and that's about it, right? There's, there's no texture. So I, I thought it would be really interesting. But of course, uh, flying at that kind of uh, altitude is always much more interesting when you're over land, especially when you're over familiar territory. When I was going to school in Chicago and would fly back to Nevada, inevitably I would be flying over Nevada in the dark, and there aren't that many towns here, so you can pretty well pick out where they all are and which one you're flying over because uh, you, know, you know them all from the ground. But it's wonderful to have that kind of perspective, to be able to see uh, from the air like that. And that's really what we're doing in this survey. And next week, we're going to come back and, and we're going to look at small pieces and begin to work our way through. But first of all, I wanted to give that bird's eye view. I wanted us to be able to see how things are in relation to each other. You might be surprised at how close certain uh, things that, that are near us are to one another, like uh, Lahontan, for example. How close is that to Fernley? or something like that. You know, if you, it takes a while to drive there, but if you fly over it, you see they're actually pretty close. Things like that. So we're trying to get the lay of the land by going through Romans here today. And so in order for us to do that, uh, you're open to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first six verses that will launch us well into the study that we're going to be uh, doing today. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, 
our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we are in need of your help. We are in need of your help to understand big concepts that are difficult for us or perhaps we may not enjoy them or uh, we, we need your help to understand these spiritual truths that maybe are not readily visible to our own uh, minds, our own eyes in this world that we live in. Help us to understand what is written in your word. More than that, help us not only to understand it in our minds, to put ideas together, but help us uh, to be deeply impacted in, in our inner man with what we read today, with what we hear today from your word. We desire to be shaped by your word. We submit to you. We submit to your word. And we ask for your help this morning. I pray that you would help us, Father, as we may be distracted by all the things that went on uh, with the snow and things this morning or with what went on yesterday or this past week or things upcoming that may be of concern or they're exciting to us or whatever. Help us to set those things aside, not because they're unimportant, but because this is more important. This is why we are here right now at this moment is to talk about your word. So we ask for your blessing and for your help, for your convicting work by your spirit in our hearts, even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you have there in your bulletin an outline of the entire book. And again, it's a pretty broad outline. And most people don't really care about outlines. Uh, you know, point A, point B, uh, you know, point one, point two. Most people don't really care about that stuff except people who write books or preachers who like to organize ideas, right? Most other people don't. But uh, the outline that I've given you there is a, a five-point outline with some things before and some things after because I'm, I've tried to gather together the main thoughts, the main points of argument throughout the book of Romans so that we could work our way through it, think our way through the book and see what kind of argument Paul is trying to make, what he's trying to communicate to us. And so you see the first couple of uh, points there uh, are just bullet points. They, I didn't even give them, uh, you know, Roman numerals. They just got bullet points. And it's not because those are unimportant. They're very important. And in fact, they're introductory of what is to follow. Um, but I wanted to outline the major points of the argument as it develops. And so you have those five points of outline there, and, and I'll be giving you the words to fill in there. So the book of Romans, someone said to me this week, kind of challenged me a little bit because I had said, you can read it in about an hour. And this person came to me and said, are you a speed reader? <laughs> well, maybe I should have said you could read it in a short period of time because um, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's longer. I don't know. But uh, this is only 16 chapters. It is the longest book that Paul wrote. It's a little bit longer than First uh, Corinthians. It's the longest book that he wrote, but it's on one major theme. And that's kind of what we want to develop. And that's why you see the title of the talk today is an overview of Paul's gospel, because that's really what I believe Paul is presenting in the book of Romans is his presentation of the gospel, his understanding, his, his argument for the gospel, his description of the gospel. And so we see in the first bullet point there, in just the first few verses, the first 15 verses or so of chapter 1, we see that Paul introduces himself, and that's because he had never met these people. He, he had met some individuals, 
they had crossed paths in other places, but he had never been to this church. He had never been to Rome and visited the Christians there. Of course, I'm sure they had heard of him. He's Paul after all, but he did not know them face to face. And so he kind of needed to give a little bit of an introduction. And so he introduces himself more fully. And he talks about uh, the, the fact that he's a servant of Christ. Really, that word is slave. He says he, he's, he's a called apostle. He's been set apart for the gospel of God. He's been given a mission, which is to take the gospel uh, to all the world, and particularly, as he's uh, going to argue, to the Gentiles. And so he introduces himself so that they can uh, get a picture of who he is, but he also introduces the gospel. And this is why I say it's difficult to breeze through these first verses here. And again, we're going to come back to them in subsequent weeks. But uh, he introduces the gospel in, in a very succinct way, but a very dense way. He talks about the elements of the gospel. It's about, it's about Christ himself and who is this Christ. Well, he was promised beforehand by, uh, by the prophets of God in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, this, this is the son, right, who was descended from David according to the flesh, but he's declared to be the son of God and power. So he's, he's the expected Messiah. He's human, but he's also the son of God. And that's made very clear, and he's going to talk about uh, that gospel. And so he introduces the gospel right there, that, that uh, this gospel is about Jesus and about who he really is, but not just who he is, who he is and what he has done. And so he introduces the gospel there in that first part. And then when we get down to 16 and 17, which we covered last week, and frankly, it's our memory verse for this month. So I'm going to go ahead and read it again. Chapter one, verses 16 and 17, we have a theme statement of the gospel. Again, there's a lot packed in here that he's going to unpack in later chapters, but we see in 16 and 17, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so you see key elements, key ideas, threads that are going to be developed, the themes of the gospel right there packed into those two verses. And we're going to see how those play out. And so uh, we, we go ahead and move on into our first point of our outline here. And again, an outline is, uh, is difficult to do often. If you tried to outline a conversation, how often do you jump back to a previous topic? Just for a moment. How often do you jump ahead and anticipate what's coming? It's a little hard to outline. So this is not a definitive outline, but it helps us get an idea of really what he's talking about here. And so our first major point, the first point of the argument that he's making has to do with preparation for the gospel. And that preparation has to do with our plight, our condition as fallen humanity. And that condition is that all are under sin. So this is preparation for the gospel. I'll continue reading there in chapter 1, starting verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I call this the preparation for the gospel because we've not yet gotten to good news. This is only very bad news. He's talking about humanity. He's talking about people in general that people are born, humans are born with a natural understanding to some degree who God is, that He exists, certain aspects about who He really is. This is what Paul is saying. Everybody is born with this. But what do we do with it? To a man, what do we do with it? We suppress it. We take that truth and rather than respond to God in faith, what do we do? We suppress it. This is what every man does. This is what every woman does. We're born with this knowledge, but we deny it in one way or another. And so the natural condition that humanity is in is a difficult, difficult situation. We have this knowledge of God, but, but we hide it. We suppress it. We push it down. We shove it under the water and hold it there. We may do it consciously or we may do it unconsciously, but that is the case. We are born with the knowledge of God and yet we deny it. And what, what happens in that denial? Well, in the rest of this uh, chapter right here, he paints for us a very grim picture of what happens as a result of that denial. God gives us over. Three times in this passage, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. They, they denied it. There was a certain degree of, of rebellion and suppression of truth. And so what happens? Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And you, so, so you see that man who, is, who has been created to know God, has been created for relationship with God, is God's creature, yet instinctively we rebel against Him. And what does God do? As a, as a form of judgment, He gives us over to that rebellion. And so you see that there's an exchange here that happens of instead of worshiping the Creator, they begin to worship the creature. Instead of worshiping Almighty God who is blessed forever, they end up worshiping images of birds and animals and creeping things. There's a, there's a, there's a warping. As Pastor Woody said earlier, we, we worshiped something this week. Every human worshiped something this week. But apart from the gospel, apart from Christ himself, the worship is of the creation, whether it's ourselves or something else. And so we see this devolve. It goes on through the, the rest of that chapter. For, for this reason, God gave them over. And, and so God gave them over. And it just gets darker and darker and darker as you go down this passage until you end up with all kinds of evil, all kinds of wickedness that we could look around us and see. And frankly, we could look into our own heart and see. And so you see there's a, there's a gross sin. There's a, some are guilty of gross sin in this way, right? And the, this talks about some pretty overt sins that most people would call wrong, and yet people do them. And so some people are guilty of gross sins. And yet in the next chapter, we see that some are guilty of subtle sins. 
Their sins are not overt. They don't, they don't live these kind of lifestyles like the people, if you read through uh, down through the, the latter half of chapter 1, you see that some people actually know about God's standard and they know they shouldn't live a life like that, so, so they don't live a life like that. They are hearers of the Word. They, they know what God's standard is. And so they don't do those gross things, and I don't mean gross as in disgusting. Some of them are. Gross as in big, visible, obvious to everybody. Their, their sin is more subtle. It's more of a hard attitude. Or it's more of a something on the side that's kind of acceptable to you all. It's acceptable to, to the, the, the culture. It's acceptable to other people who look at my life and, well, that's not a big deal, Brennan. You don't need to worry about that. And he's talking here particularly about the Jews. Because the Jews would look at the Gentiles and see the Gentiles are living lives that are clearly in rebellion against God. Not like those of us who follow the law. But he makes the argument in chapter 2 that yeah, you may not do those gross things, but, but you who judge those who do such things, you actually do those kind of things in your own life on a smaller scale. But the point is, it's not the hearers of the law who are justified before God, but it's the doers of the law, right? So what he's saying is, yeah, you hear the law, you know the law. Does your life match up to it perfectly? It does not. And that brings us to the third point here. All are shut up under sin. If you've read chapter three, you know that it's a pretty dark chapter. Right? He continues that argument about those who, who have subtle sin and whatnot. Uh, it's not big-time sin, but then he comes to chapter 3 and beginning in verse 10, and we read this. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So what he's saying is there, there is that in chapter 1 he made the argument about, about uh, pagans who are, who are wrapped up under sin. It's obvious by looking at their lifestyle. And this, by the way, that kind of lifestyle is a judgment from God as he gives them over to be able to run headlong into their sin and thus incur more wrath. It's a form of judgment. But then there are those who don't sin in that same way. But he says here in chapter 3, they're all tied up under sin. There's no one who perfectly does good. There's no one who seeks for God. There's no one who understands. And he goes on and on and on. And by the way, these aren't his words. He's quoting from the Old Testament. This isn't a new idea. But the point is that all are wrapped up under sin. And, and so that, that first section, that whole first point of your outline there, the preparation for the gospel, is not good news yet. It's only bad news. But I like to say that the hardest part of getting someone saved is getting them lost. Helping someone understand they, they stand in a place before God as God's enemy, as a rebel against him, as someone who has sin that must be dealt with. That's one of the most difficult parts of evangelism, helping someone understand that. So we see our first outline in these first three chapters. That first point there is about the preparation for the gospel. And then he transitions into what we talked about last week of the heart of the gospel. Here in uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, the heart of the gospel, which of course is justification by faith. And he goes through and, and uh, begins to argue here in chapter 3. He says, but now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he's going to go on to say there's no distinction. All have sinned and justification is available by faith for all. And so he begins to talk about justification by faith as the heart of the gospel message. 
Now, you may be wondering, why would he give the heart of the gospel message only three chapters in? He's got a bunch more chapters to go, but he's going to develop how it works. He's going to develop what it looks like, what it means in our lives, what the the different aspects are. But here in 21 through 31, he summarizes that that truth of justification by faith. The fact that we stand before God as those, chapter 1, 2, 3, who are guilty before God, as rebels at enmity with God, we have accumulated a great horrible debt of sin. And how is our positive righteousness looking? Are we righteous before God? No, we have zero. So we have huge debt of sin. We have zero righteousness before God. But justification is available to us not by getting rid of all this sin, not by adding up some positive works of righteousness, but instead by looking to Christ, who is the one who stood in as the propitiation for our sin, the one who bore the punishment for our sin, and the one who gives us his righteousness from his life of obedience. And so that's justification by faith, which is spelled out here, outlined in 21 through 31. And this is the heart of the gospel. And so as you might imagine, we're going to spend a lot of time over the next series preaching through, talking about, wrestling with, and getting to understand justification by faith. But Paul's readers might wonder, is this a new idea, Paul? Did, uh, did, did, is this something Jesus came up with that never existed before, that, that hadn't uh, been known before? Is this, a, is this a, a different kind of Judaism? Is this something new? Well, Paul in chapter 4 turns to uh, examples of this doctrine found in the Old Testament. He's going to talk about Abraham. He's going to talk about something David said. And in doing so, he's talking about the fact that justification has always been by faith. This isn't a new idea. This isn't something that Jesus concocted one day or that Jesus said it and it was the first time it had ever been thought of. In fact, he he argues there in chapter 4, he says, if we look at Abraham's life, Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And by the way, this the statement, it was counted to him as righteousness, happened before he had ever done anything obedient. It happened before he had even been circumcised. This wasn't available only to the circumcised. He believed God's promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just as David says in Psalm 51, there in verse 7 of chapter 4, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here, even in Psalm 51, you have David speaking about justification by faith. And so this is not a new concept. Paul is saying if you'll open your, your Bible and read, you will see that justification has always been by faith. And so that's point number two, the heart of the gospel. Well, then we move on to point number three, which is going to cover several chapters all the way from chapter five, all the way through chapter eight. And this is a, an explanation of the mechanics of the gospel, how the gospel works. He's, he's described what justification is And now he's stepping back and he's walking through it piece by piece to tell you how justification works, how the gospel works. So we have the mechanics of the gospel there in chapters 5 through 8. First of all, in in chapter 5, we see a fascinating discussion. The first half of the chapter there is about reconciliation. And in the second half of that chapter, he begins to talk about Adam and Christ. He begins to talk about Uh, Adam as a type of Christ. 
So you see that he's kind of comparing or contrasting the two. And the way he's presenting Adam and Christ here as is not as private individuals. He's presenting them as public figures, meaning heads of their people. We call them federal heads. So you have Adam who was acting on behalf of all of his people. Have you ever wondered how it is that Adam's sin can be imputed to us? Doesn't that seem wrong? What's called imputed, imputation. It's because he was our federal head. And so what he did on our behalf includes us. We are now responsible for it. I've used the illustration before of if our government went to war, even though we in this room didn't want to go to war, are we at war? We are. Because our government, our federal head, said that we are. And so it has implications. So if, if we went to war with Australia... You, went, you tried to travel to Australia, you'd be in trouble, even though you're, you're not for this war, right? And so that's the idea of a federal head. And so we have the, these two federal heads. You have Adam and you have Christ, and they are acting on behalf of the people who come after them. They're, they're acting on behalf of the people they represent. And Adam, what did Adam do? He sinned, right? And, he, and so he, he disobeyed God, right? He received condemnation and death. And so what do we inherit from him as those who were in, born in Adam? Sin, condemnation, death. Those same things we inherit from Adam. And that's what we're born with because he is our federal head. But then along comes Christ. And Adam is a type of Christ who is the one to come, right? And so Christ comes on the scene. And what does Christ do? Well, he obeys, right? He, he, he gives forgiveness, Right? He gives life. And so we see the exact opposites are ours for those who are in Christ. And so you have Adam acting on behalf of his people, all those who are born in Adam. And you have Christ acting on behalf of his people, all those who are reborn, who are born into Christ. And so you see this, this, this great comparison of two family trees, as it were. Only it's different because we were all born into one family tree, Adam's. And by faith in Christ, we are transferred into his family tree, Christ's. And we inherit those things that are ours because of what he has accomplished for us. And so we have these two Adams. And I'm going to read from chapter 5, just uh, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so there you have a contrast of these two federal heads and what they earn for their people. And so I I said earlier that the, the heart of the gospel is there in 321 through 31. But this is, I think, my opinion is this chapter is the heart of this book, meaning it's the heart of his argument. This chapter is what makes the whole book of Romans tie together and make sense. And so I'm really looking forward to getting into chapter 5. But we move on. So you have this, this idea of the two Adams. Um, and what happens for those who are in Christ? What happens for those who by faith in Christ have now become part of this family tree? Well, we have chapter 6. And we read this. Chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
And so you ask, well, how have we died? In Christ. When Christ died, that is applied to us. And so the freedom from sin that comes from death comes because his death is applied to us. And thus death doesn't, uh, sin doesn't have power over us. We're freed from that because of the death of Christ on our behalf. That's how federal headship works. The things that are true for him become true for those who are in him. And so his death is counted as our death, and thus we are freed from the power of sin. We go on to chapter 7. What about the law? Because the law still exists. The law still makes demands. What about the law? What about our relationship with the law for those who are in Christ? Well, we look at chapter 7 and verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so again, that death of Christ is applied to us for those who are in him. And thus we are freed from the law because we've died. And there's a great illustration there of being freed from uh, marriage by death. You can no longer be married to someone who has died, or at least the law cannot look at you and demand that you act as though you were married or, or whatever. You're free to remarry when a spouse has died. And so the same way with the law. When a person dies, the law has no bearing on them. Well, in Christ, we've died. And thus, the law cannot make those demands on us. But the fact is, we still live on in this fallen form. We still walk around in this world. We still have this body. We still carry residual effects of being in Adam. And so... The law does make demands on us that we see, we see this struggle going on within ourselves that Paul talks about there in the second half of chapter seven. And <clears throat> he's, he's going on and he's talking about the fact that, okay, so I'm in Christ. I want to obey Christ. And yet I find that I don't always, why do I do this thing? I don't want to do. And, and, and the thing that I want to do, which is obey Christ. Why do I, why do I not do that? There's a struggle there's this struggle with sin. There's this struggle with this, uh, my body, the, the residual effects of being in Adam. I still bear until my actual physical death, until, until I actually receive uh, that newness of life in that sense. And so he explains that in chapter 7, verse 25. This is what he says. He says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh... I serve the law of sin. What he's saying there is, I'm still tempted. I still sin. I don't want to. Why does it work out that way? Well, it's because I am still carrying in my body elements of what it means to be an Adam. This body of death, he calls it. So yes, I'm in Christ and I have these new desires. I have these things I want to do. I want to obey God. I want to please Him. And yet I don't always. So what am I going to do? What do I do? Well, then that's when we get to chapter 8. Chapter 8, perhaps the most encouraging chapter in all of the Bible. We read this, continuing on from where we were. Chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He says, you who are in Christ, yes, you carry in, uh, in your body the death, the remnants, the, the remains, the residual effects of what it means to be in Adam, but you have the Holy Spirit who lives within you. And part of the Holy Spirit's job is to give life to your bodies. So that as you continue on in this context of, of being in this world, but, but, but not really, carrying the residual effects of being in Adam and yet being in Christ, the Holy Spirit gives life to your mortal bodies. So that as you grow, He invigorates you. He causes you to follow after Him. He creates that newness of life in your very members. And so we have hope. We who look at our lives and see, yeah, I know I'm in Christ, but I see a lot of Adam there. The Holy Spirit within us who, who encourages us and who, who, who speaks into our hearts and, and reminds us that we are children of God, if we are. The one who gives the spirit of adoption, who gives us the right to cry, Abba, Father. That Holy Spirit who lives within us, He gives life to our members. So that even in this life, even while we do carry about this body of death, he gives us spiritual life to obey Him. And so that's the working out. That's how the gospel works. That's, those are the steps. Those, those are the elements that are involved there. And so that's really the, the theological heart of the whole book is 5 through 8 there. It has a lot of implications. And, and uh, some of those implications are going to come up later on. But the first implications here have to do with the defense of the gospel. Point number 4, a defense of the gospel, which is chapter 9, 10, and 11. By the way, I stole that title, Lock, Stock, and Barrel from Douglas Moo. So just give him, him credit. Defense of the gospel. Because if this salvation is so great, if Christ came to do what he did and he's accomplishing it and, and, and in Christ we, we are dead to sin, we are dead to the law and we have the Holy Spirit living within us, this is a wonderful thing. This is good news. And if this is the outworking of what, what God intended to do in the Old Testament, why is it that there are so few Jewish believers? Did, God's, did God change His promise? Did His promise fail? Well, that's what He's answering in 9, 10, and 11. So He's going to walk through and talk about how, first of all, in chapter 9, God is able to elect. He has been doing so from the beginning. And the fact that He does so now is no change. God has always been the one who will be gracious to whom He will be gracious and show compassion to whom He will show compassion. And so nothing has changed there. God is able to be uh, an electing God. He is justified in His election now just like He was then. And His purpose in doing so is uh, discussed here in chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 9 and verse 4. In, in reflecting on the Israelites and what, what has gone on with them, He says this kind of summing up His argument there in chapter 9 and verse 4. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. They have, they have every benefit. They, they, there are people who have been uh, blessed by God. There are people who have these promises from God, and yet we see that they are not yet fulfilled. And so what's happening? Well, he goes on in chapter 10, and, he's, and he points out the fact that God has been using this hardness 
of Israel to take the gospel of salvation, not just to a particular ethnic group, not just to a particular nation, but to the Gentiles, to all the world. So in chapter 10, we see that justification by faith is for all the world. That righteousness of faith is not just for a particular people in a particular place, but it's for Gentiles as well. And so we see those great statements of salvation there in chapter 10. And we come back to chapter 11 and we see that, in fact, this was God's design that God very intentionally did things in the history of the nation of Israel, including the hardness of their hearts, on purpose so that he could include all the world, people from all nations, tribes and tongues into his people. Look at chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Speaking of the nation of Israel, Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And so you see that Paul is arguing that God has worked in the nation of Israel not only to be the ones who brought forth Messiah, but also through their hardness of heart, thus the gospel going out to Gentiles, including other people, which then makes the nation of Israel jealous, results in an even fuller number of people being saved, an even greater group being saved. And this is all a part of God's plan. And so uh, that's that's how he culminates there at the end of chapter 11. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. He's not just uh, entering into history every now and again to do this little thing and that little thing. He's planned it all on purpose. It's like a giant orchestra. And he is bringing about the peace that he wants. And then finally, the final section here, 12 through 15, the transforming power of the gospel. The transforming power of the gospel. First of all, in, in chapter 12 and verses two, uh, 1 and 2, we read this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So finally, after 11 chapters of theology, after 11 chapters of teaching, of doctrine, finally we come to, in verse 12, therefore do this. 12 chapters, 11 chapters out of 16, spent on understanding the truth of doctrine before there's the instruction of therefore how we should behave. There are some things scattered in verse six, or excuse me, chapter six. He talks about that we don't yield our, our members. We don't give, give over to sin as if sin is our master. It's not. There's some things like that, but he doesn't get to the heart of his uh, exhortation, of his commands until he gets to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he talks about mainly what it is to live together as Christians. What this, the impacts of the gospel are in the Christian life. So that's chapter 12. Chapter 13, he moves on and he says, what, what are the impacts of the Christian uh, life and the government? 
How should we respond to government? I mean, if we're free, if we're free from law, maybe that means I can do whatever I want. I can drive however I want. I can. No, it doesn't mean that. The Christian is to live in submission to the government because God is the one who's put the government there. Move on into chapter 14. And he talks about gray areas. I'm sure you've noticed this in the Christian life. There are one or two areas where there might be disagreement amongst spiritual Christians about things like he talks about here, like food sacrifice to idols. Well, there are a couple of ways to look at that. And uh, some people are convicted. I know I cannot touch that food that's sacrificed to idols. I can't do that. And others look and say, no, for these reasons, it's not a problem. And so he talks here in chapter, chapter 14 about how we can live together with these gray areas. He's not talking about areas of morality, things that are right and wrong in themselves. He's talking about areas that we can, we can disagree on and have discussion on. And so how do we treat one another? If I'm the one who says, no way can we eat uh, food sacrificed to idols, and you are wrong if you do it, and I'm going to... How am I supposed to relate to you if I'm that person? On the other hand, how am I supposed to relate to you if I'm the one who says uh, an idol really isn't anything, and uh, when they sacrifice it to it, um, it didn't accomplish anything, and God is a redeeming God, I'm going to eat this food. And, and you just need to grow up in your faith a little bit. Is that how I'm supposed to behave towards you? And so in chapter 14, he talks about how we relate to one another. He says, be gentle to one another. He says, be kind to one another. Be considerate of the impact of your decisions in these areas uh, might have on other people. You might actually drive someone back into idolatry because for you, eating food sacrificed to idols is no big deal. But for them, just last year, they were eating that as a form of worship and you serve them that at your house and now they're into it and they go back into idolatry. We need to be kind to one another. We need to be considerate to one another. And so Christians in gray areas, chapter 14, chapter 15, uh, it's kind of tying some things up here, uh, but he's, he's talking about, uh, in the end there, he's talking about his own ministry. Because Paul's ministry looked weird. Here's a Jew who's an apostle, but he was an apostle to the Gentiles. Right? To us, that seems pretty normal because we read a lot of Paul. But for them, it was a very unusual thing. And so he spends some time explaining uh, what exactly uh, his ministry is like. And so we read in chapter 15, verses 8 and following, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes several passages from the Old Testament talking about rejoice, O Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles, because you have been included in. So he wraps up uh, that line of argument there by what he says in uh, in chapter 15, verse 21. But as as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So the point is, The gospel has gone broadly into the world to Gentiles included. And Paul is saying, that's my primary ministry. And he says, by the way, I make a big deal out of my ministry. Why? Because God is using my ministry, is using evangelism and the growth of the church amongst the Gentiles to cause jealousy within the nation of Israel that Jews might begin to look and see, why is it that the Gentiles have that relationship with our God and we don't? And so we see Paul summing up what his own argument or what his own ministry is like there, why he's ministering the way he is to the Gentiles. 
And then we have the conclusion there in chapter 16, parting greetings. If you want to learn some Greek and Hebrew names, this is a good opportunity for you to go through there. There is a lot of information in there because we read about many of these people in other places. And so there, there is good information to, to be had here. There is good instruction. And, uh, and we're going to look at that for sure. But he concludes with his doxology there in verse 25 of chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Why is he spelling out the gospel? Why does he spend 16 chapters? Why does he, why does he put so much effort into explaining the gospel? And he's writing to people who are Christians already. Why spend so much time on the gospel, Paul? Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings uh, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so he spells out the gospel in great detail and answers all manner of questions that we have about how the gospel works, why Jesus' death is important, why Jesus' obedience is important, what's uh, our relationship to sin, to the law, to the Holy Spirit. All of this, how does this work? How does the gospel come to us and how does God bring salvation? And he explains it in detail in Romans. And so my desire for us, as we conclude this morning, is that we would gain a passion like Paul had for that gospel. That it would become to us my gospel. It, Paul calls the gospel the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of God, and he calls it my gospel. He's the one preaching it, of course, but he's not the only one. But my desire is that it be that for us, that it, that it become my gospel. That, that people who have perhaps been hearing the gospel for years, that they would have answers uh, to questions that they didn't even know they had. And questions that have been bugging them, that those questions would be answered from this book. My desire is that the gospel will become so important to us that, that we would be thinking about it all the time. That it would be so much on our minds that it would become part of our conversation with one another, with unbelievers that we would be enamored with, that we would be, that we would be t- taken to that point just like Paul is in chapter 11 and verse 33 where we would just cry out, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. This gospel that he has worked out to save a people for his own possession. And we get to be those people. So that's my desire for us over the next period of time. I'm going to pray in a moment. After I'm done praying, there's going to be a family up front to pray with you if you want to come and, and uh, maybe you want to trust Christ. Maybe you have questions about the gospel and how, how it affects you personally. Maybe you've got other things that you need to pray about. They, they love to pray with you. They love to encourage you. And uh, they will bless you and you will bless them if you will come. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in this gospel. We rejoice that we who were your enemies in Christ have been made your sons.
We are in Christ. We become those who benefit from what Christ has done, that we have obedience because Jesus gave it to us. We have forgiveness because Jesus gave it to us. And we have eternal life because Jesus gave it to us. Thank you that we get to be in Christ. And Father, I pray that uh, our study, even, even our very brief time we spent today, would be an encouragement for us to open Romans and read it for ourselves, to, to uh, not just to stop there, but then to turn to you in prayer and to rejoice and give you glory for what you have done for us in the gospel and sending Christ for us to redeem the people for your own possession. Thank you that we don't have to be in Adam anymore. We can be in Christ by faith. So, Father, I pray that you would take this gospel message, that you would draw many to yourself, even today. Do a work in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in our community. May we be heralds of this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.